Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? Day and night I have only tears for food. My heart is breaking. Now I am deeply discouraged. Why must I wander around in grief? Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? Our selected verses from the 42nd Psalm. Do any of the words of the psalmist there resonate with any of you? Or feel like that guy? Have situations and circumstances in life ever got you down so much so that it ends up just souring your disposition, souring your perspective and your view on things? When bad things happen to us, when bad things happen around us, we end up just kind of developing a very negative outlook on life. Things are bad now and seems like things are just always going to be bad. You feel that way? I want to confess to you this morning that in recent weeks, uh, I have been the Psalm 42 guy. Now, not everybody here has seen evidence of that on my face. In fact, I'm pretty good at putting on a, a good poker face. I'll put on my Mr. Enthusiastic costume whenever I need to. But I will candidly tell you that there have been events that have happened in recent months that have caused my attitude to suffer and my mind to be filled with just frankly just some stinking thinking. Congregationally, I was disappointed that our efforts to establish an eldership did not yield that particular result. On the home front, we have had to deal with just some rough stuff in the last little bit, uh, not the least of which would be the anniversary of my brother's death this past weekend. Uh, I have friends and I have brothers and sisters in Christ who have confided in me and have let me know about some of the severe trials that they're going through And I hurt for them and I feel that pain with them. But to make matters even worse, I am afraid that I've not really been of much help to them in those things. Those and just a dozen other things have brought me to where I'm kind of like the Psalm 42 guy. Grief left me discouraged. And what I noticed about about a week and a half ago is that my attitude toward all these things that were happening, my attitude was just getting a little bit worse and a little bit worse, and a little bit worse with each passing day. My thinking as a result, really my thinking about everything, was just really kind of ugly. Now, for those of you who hold the delusion that preachers should be perfect, and should be the model for perfection, and should never show any kind of signs of weakness, then this is probably very troubling for you to hear me say this. But I'm being very frank and very honest with you this morning when I say that I don't think I've been a very pleasant person to be around for the last little bit. And to make matters worse, I'm afraid that some of my negative thinking maybe has rubbed off on others and has maybe caused them to have negative thinking as well. And that's not an indictment on anybody else. That's an indictment on me. And that's an indictment on my bad attitude. So somebody maybe says, okay, Josh, what specifically are you talking about here? What kind of attitude has been plaguing you and causing you to feel and relate to this guy in Psalm 42? Maybe you could share some things that maybe I could relate with you. Well, perhaps you can. Let me just share maybe a few ideas, see if any of this hits close to home for you. Uh, What about maybe, can you relate to the idea of being pessimistic? A very pessimistic point of view? Uh, The pessimist is the person who tends to see everything in terms of of just the worst case scenario. The pessimist believes that anything in prospect 
Well, it's just going to turn out bad. It is the, it's the Debbie Downer syndrome. Where no matter how bright or how sunny things may look in the sky today, well, I can see further down the road. And there's a cloud way back there. And I tell you what, it's going to rain. And it's going to rain a whole lot. So that's what I'm kind of looking for. In fact, no matter how good and bright the situation may be, the person may be, the event may be, the Debbie Downer person, the pessimist person, he can always find the negative. Yeah, but... Well, you know, that's all well and good, but but what about this? You know, you make some good points there, but I'm not sure about that. You know, here's the problem with the pessimistic way of thinking. You end up being defeated before you ever even really get started. And usually there's a lot of fear in all of that. In fact, you can hear it a lot of times just in the voice of the pessimist. Well, you know, we tried that before, but it didn't work, so... Well, we could, but I just don't think... You know, what I'm scared of and what I'm worried about is... Do you hear it? Do you hear the voice of pessimism? Do you hear the voice of pessimism when we look at passages like Numbers chapter 13? And we read about those ten spies who brought back an evil report of the land of Canaan. They said, well, you know, it looks great, it looks amazing, but I just don't think we're going to be able to do this. Maybe most importantly, do you hear yourself in the pessimist? Maybe a close cousin to that attitude would be the attitude of the cynic. The cynic sees everything in everybody, and yes, some of you are chuckling, I, that was my own Microsoft Paint efforts there. The cynic sees everything in everybody through just a jaded and cracked perspective. The cynic seems to look at everybody with kind of a jaundiced eye. Because they don't believe that anybody does anything with just totally pure and good motives. They're always questioning, why did they do that? I don't think they did that just out of the goodness of their heart. They're always assuming that eventually that person's selfishness and that person's self-interest is going to eventually shine through. And so as a result, they're just very suspicious of others. Whenever somebody does something good, the cynic says, yeah, but what are they hiding? You know, why did they, are they doing that just to be seen by others? Are they doing that because they want something in return? Why are they being nice to me all of a sudden? That is the attitude of cynicism. Where we just suspect that others have ulterior motives all the time. And as a result, we get to a point where we just we really don't even trust people. Think about Jesus' enemies. In Luke chapter 20 and verse 20, we're told about the enemies of Jesus, who I think were very much the poster children for cynicism. Those enemies of Jesus, they watched Him closely every single day because they were certain that they were going to be able to catch Him in some kind of a mess up, some kind of a misdeed or some kind of a wrong word. They were skeptical. Oh, nobody can be that good. Nobody can be that kind. Nobody can be that compassionate and that nice all of the time. And as a result, they didn't trust Jesus. They didn't believe Him. You ever find that in your life? You ever find the cynic inside you just kind of welling up to the surface? Maybe the outlook on life that maybe hits closest to home for some of us is the attitude of the fatalist. The fatalist is the person who in their mind, they believe that, well, things are the way they are and well, there's just nothing that can ever be done to change that. It is what it is. How often do we hear that today? It is what it is. Hey, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. The fatalist believes that they have just no power whatsoever to influence or to affect circumstances for the better. It's just the way it is. 
It isn't really just kind of an attitude of, of resignation, just kind of going ahead and giving up before you get started. It's the idea that, that fate or, or destiny or the cosmos or some other kind of superstitious force is really in control here. And what we have to do is we just have to accept that nothing we can do, nothing we can say, nothing could ever happen that could make this situation improve. In fact, I think you could hear the fatalist often in our talk when we say things like, that's just the way I am. And that's just my nature. Or you know what? That's just how He is. That's just people. You can't change that. The fundamental problem in all of that is that the fatalistic mindset just really tends to remove God from the picture altogether. Because God, I believe, has the power to change people. God has the power to change you. He has the power to change me. He has the power to change circumstances and events. He has the power to change this church. He has the power to change this community. He has the power to change this world. He can do all of that. He can do all of that for the better. But I'm afraid that all too often, just like Elijah so long ago in 1 Kings chapter 19, we allow that fatalistic attitude to take over and to dominate. We get so discouraged by the things that happen around us and we go crawl into a cave and we tell ourselves and resign ourselves to the fact that, well, things are just never going to improve. They're never going to get any better, so what's the point in even trying? These people are never going to change, so why should I even bother? Do any of those attitudes strike a chord with any of you? Would you like to know which one of those three attitudes has poisoned my disposition in recent days and weeks and months? Actually, all three of them. And yes, you are allowed to laugh here. Because I knew that up to this point things were going to be kind of heavy, so I wanted to kind of make things light for a moment. But at various times, and to varying degrees, I have been the pessimist. And I have been the cynic. And I have been the fatalist. And I must tell you that it has eaten away at my spirit to the point that I have had negative thinking toward family members. I have had negative thinking toward my brothers and sisters in Christ. I've had negative thinking toward just random strangers going to a restaurant and how the waitress treats me. I just don't even like her. I have all kinds of bad attitudes towards people that I don't even know. Negative thinking even about myself. And I must tell you that if any of that has manifested itself in an outward sort of way toward anybody in this room, I want you to know that I am sorry for that. In fact, you can come tell me after services, Josh, you did this or you said this and it really hurt my feelings. And I want you to tell me that and I will apologize to you and I will ask for your forgiveness personally. Because what I have come to realize over the course of the last week and a half or so is that these attitudes, not only are they destructive and unhealthy for the physical mind, And there's certainly lots of scientific data to back all of that up. But more importantly, what I have come to realize is that these things, they are unbiblical. That's what they are. They are against the will of God for my life. These things are ungodly. I believe the devil has convinced me, maybe he has convinced you at various points, that you know what, it's okay to be a little bit pessimistic from time to time. It's okay to have a little bit of that cynic in you. That's able to help maybe kind of weed things out. You can figure out what's truly real. These things are against the will of the Lord. And I'm going to tell you this morning that none of these are the things that need to characterize Christians. These are the kinds of things that should be absolutely opposed to a life in Jesus Christ. Can I tell you about a fourth attitude? 
And this is where I've come to. This is the place that I have come to, that I have determined and I have decided that I'm going to be about from this day forward. It's the attitude of the optimist. I know I've said that before in sermons. I think I've even prayed that before in prayers. But I've not really thought about it and given that enough weight and seriousness in my mind and in my life as I have in the last couple of weeks. This is the perspective that every child of God must adopt. And I am saying to you this morning that I've made the decision to get rid of all of that stinking thinking and to clothe my mind, to clothe my spirit with optimism. What is optimism? Optimism is the tendency to believe that the very best possible outcome will happen. It is the expectation that good will triumph over the bad. It is the belief and the confidence that in the end, all of the books are going to be balanced. And I have decided that that's who I'm going to be. I've decided that that's what I'm going to be about the business of. I believe that God calls Christians to see the good in bad situations. And for just as much as I have made that resolution for myself, I am inviting and summoning you to join me in adopting that exact same spirit. And what are we talking about here? Well, I do believe we're talking about the fact that God calls Christians to be the people that are going to see the silver lining. Yeah, we're going to be those folks. God calls Christians to be the people who see the glass as half full, not half empty. And not only do we see it as half full, but we're going to drink it. That's why it's there. We believe that what's in that glass and what is there, it's for our good. God has given it to us. It is there for us. And we see the good in other people. And even bad people, what we do is we look to try and find some good in them. Why? Because every person has been made in the image of God. And they can change. And I believe they can change. They can change for the better. Optimism says, I expect to get better. Is that your expectation? Do you expect your marriage to get better? Do you expect your kids to be better? Do you expect this church to get better? Do you expect yourself to be better? Optimism says it's possible. Actually, it's likely. Actually, it can happen. And whenever I partner with God, when I participate with Him in His things, then ultimately, good is going to prevail. I believe God calls upon us to be optimistic and positive people. In fact, that passage we began with in Psalm chapter 42 probably sounded pretty negative. You might be thinking, man, that's just a bunch of bad news that guy's spouting off. Well, in verse 11, the psalmist actually concludes his thought after saying, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? He then follows that up by saying, I will put my hope in God. I've turned the corner here. I've made a decision. I'm going to put my hope in God. I will praise Him again, my Savior and my God. That is where optimism comes from. It comes from the Lord. When I'm talking about optimism this morning, I'm not talking about some kind of blind naivete. No, we are talking about a positive point of view that results from a hope and faith in God. Would you find Hebrews the 11th chapter with me, please? I want you to see this in the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 11, this is that wonderful chapter in the Bible about faith. And without question, Christianity is built on faith. That's where it all begins. 
In Hebrews the 11th chapter, the Hebrew writer helps us with defining what faith is, beginning in verse 1, Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I love that rendering of it in the ESV. Think about that. Hopeful assurance. One translation uses the wording, the certainty of unseen things. What does that sound like to you? You hear that kind of language, what does that sound like? That sounds like pretty optimistic language, doesn't it? By its very definition, faith in God, it requires optimism. And that He exists. But beyond just the fact that God exists, I'm more than just optimistic that He's there. Furthermore, I'm optimistic that He loves me. That He cares about me. That He wants what is best for me. That He longs to forgive me. He desires to bring me home to heaven for all of eternity. In fact, if you drop on down to verse 6, the writer goes on to say that without that kind of hopeful, confident, optimistic outlook on things, he says, you cannot please God. You will not please God. And I'm afraid that for a few weeks now, with all of my negative thinking, I've not been pleasing God. And so right here, at the very foundation of who and what we are, is faith, and faith demands optimism. Can I show you another passage in this connection? A very familiar passage. Look in Philippians 4. In Philippians chapter 4, here's a passage, here's a verse that gets badly misused. People take this verse and want to apply it in all kinds of wrong ways. But when we keep it in its context, and what Paul's talking about here, it does carry a powerful punch. In Philippians chapter 4 and in verse 13, Paul says there, I can do all things... Through Christ who strengthens me. Now let's be clear. That verse does not mean that you can climb up to the top of this building and flap your wings and jump off and you'll start flying. That's not what that means. This verse does not mean I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I think I'll grow another ear. My hearing's getting bad. I think I'm going to grow another ear and that'll help me. that's, That's not what that verse means. What this verse means is that you can do everything that God expects you to do through the strength that Christ gives. If there is something in this book that God wishes for people to be involved in, if there is something in this book that God instructs Christians to do, you can do it. Paul says so. You can let go of that sinful habit. You can teach your neighbor the gospel. You can have a great and long-lasting marriage. You can raise godly children. You can be a light and influence in a world full of darkness. You can do that stuff. And that's not just a big pipe dream, wishful thinking. No, that is an optimistic expectation that is based on faith in Jesus Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That there will be nothing withheld from my hand insofar as I pursue the will of God. doesn't matter how weak I am right now. It doesn't matter how ignorant I happen to be today. None of that really matters because if you drop on down to verse 19, Paul goes on to say, My God will supply every need according to His riches. Man, that is extremely optimistic. Don't you agree? That is a very positive point of view. And what Paul is telling these people, and he's telling them this from prison no less, is that our God is in heaven and He is listening And He cares, and He will enable you to do everything that He wants you to do. 
And not only does that provide me with great optimism, but furthermore, passages like this are indicative of the fact that God is optimistic. Have you ever thought about that before? I'm afraid I've not given that nearly enough thought. That the God of heaven, the Lord of all whom we serve, He is an optimistic God. You stop and think about the kind of language and the themes that are most common throughout the Bible. Just stop and think for a moment about all the Bible verses that you've memorized and you've heard throughout your life. Think of all the sermons that you've heard throughout your life. What kind of ideas come flooding to your mind as being kind of main things in the Bible? See, what comes to my mind, I think of words like hope, faith, love, and life, and joy. Those are all positive ideas, aren't they? In fact, really the whole story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it is presented from a very positive point of view where God is working. What's the story of the Bible? It is God working to bring salvation to lost sinners. That has to require optimism on God's part. And I know that God must be optimistic because when you read the Bible, just take a look at the kind of messed up people that God worked with in order to make that happen. Look at the kind of idiots that sometimes God works with in order to make that happen. Think of the people that we would even think of as great people. Noah got drunk. Abraham lied. David was an adulterer. Jonah was just just absolutely rebellious, defiant. Peter, impulsive. Look at the mistakes that those people make again and again and again. God knew that all along and He still used them. God saw the potential for good there. Didn't dwell on the bad. Focused on what was good there. He used those people over and over again, believing that they would get done what He wanted them to get done. That's very optimistic if you ask me. And so God Himself, He he kind of sets the example for us His children. You know, can any of us even imagine? Can any of us imagine God being the pessimist? Or God being the cynic? Can you imagine that kind of Attitude being manifest by God. Those kinds of words coming out of God's mouth. Alright, I'm, I'm going to tell all you people what to do. And I'm going to give you all the tools and all the things that are necessary in order to carry out and to accomplish my will. But, eh, I just don't really think you're going to do it. I, don't think you, I just don't think you're going to get it done. I don't think you have it within you. I don't think you're going to stick to this. What's the point in even trying? Can you imagine God being like that? Can we even begin to picture the Lord having that kind of sour and negative disposition that we often have? Absolutely not. Why then do we allow our minds to be polluted with such rotten attitudes and such negative thinking all the time? Why is our first inclination to assume the worst out of people? Oh, he'll, he'll never get his life straightened up. Oh, she, she, she'll never obey the gospel. Why do we think ill of our brethren? Oh, I know what his motives are. Oh, I know what she's trying to do. Why are we so quick to adopt the bleak perspective of this world that leads to nowhere good? That's not like the Lord. That's not Christ-like. In fact, it's really quite the opposite. It's very Satan-like. You ever thought about that? Satan. The very first words out of his mouth recorded in Scripture in Genesis chapter 3 are cynical and pessimistic words as He spoke to Eve. Or what about in Job chapter 1 and in verse 11? Whenever Satan inquired about God's servant Job, 
the pessimism in his voice when he says, yeah, Job's faithful to you now, God. But when you take away all of his stuff, when you take away all of his health, he'll stop being faithful to you. I just know it. And we see that and we read those kinds of passages and we can recognize how ugly that is in the devil. Why don't we see how ugly that is when it comes out of us? Well, I'll say again, it, it took me a while. But I have come to recognize that kind of negative thinking and that kind of negative talking in my own life and I have determined that I'm going to be done with that. In fact, I am very optimistic that I will be done with that. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, right about now, this is usually the point in the lesson where everybody kind of expects Josh to kind of then get into kind of the take-homes. He's going to give us three points for how to build optimism. Or are you going to give us, you know, four points to think about, about how to put an end to negative and cynical thinking? That's actually not what I have for you today. Instead, I simply have one thing. And it is the one thing that served as the catalyst for my shift in attitude and in perspective. And that one thing is the Word of God. I have probably immersed myself more in the Scriptures during the past couple of weeks than at any other time in my life. Because in addition to those passages that we have already alluded to this morning, the Bible, I was just struck by how overwhelmingly optimistic the message of Scripture is. Here on the screen are more than a dozen passages that I have read at one point or another during the last couple of weeks that I hope and I believe ought to instill and compel optimism in the child of God. And I must tell you that I really don't think that there's any kind of magic formula or there's some kind of a three-step process that causes optimism to appear. I believe optimism, it is simply a choice. It's a decision. You decide how you're going to view the circumstances and the difficulties and the people and the events that you face in this life. You either choose to see the positive and the good in things, or you're going to choose to dwell on the negative and the ugly and the bad. Either way, though, it's a choice. It is a choice that you make, and it is a choice that you will have to live with and you will have to answer for one day, just as I will have to live with my choice. Now, obviously, this morning, we don't have time to read and to discuss all of those passages. Note-takers, write those passages down. If you don't take notes and you want those passages, I'll send those to you in some other form this week. What I'd like to do instead is I'd like to just read one of those passages. And it is what I deem to be the most optimistic chapter in the whole Bible. It's Romans the 8th chapter. Would you find Romans chapter 8? I read this chapter, I forget what day last week it was. And I counted at least 20-something different reasons in this chapter as to why I, as a Christian, ought to be optimistic. And at the conclusion of doing that reading, I'm going to tell you, I was really just kind of ashamed and embarrassed of myself that I had been negative and allowed the devil to plant those negative thoughts in my mind and allowed them to stay there for so long. How can a child of God be anything but optimistic after you read a chapter like this? This chapter is written specifically to Christians. Let's read it together, and the lesson is going to be yours this morning. Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit it is life and it's peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh, it's hostile to God, for it doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, they cannot please God. But you, verse 9, Christian, you, however, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider, verse 18... I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they're not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit, He helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know, verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? Verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. 
who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? I might plug my own life in there. Congregational disappointments, family issues, friends and neighbors that are hurting. As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, verse 37, in all things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure... Listen to the confidence and the expectation and the optimism. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has blessed His people so tremendously much. And you read a chapter like that, you start just kind of cataloging and itemizing in your mind all the various ways in which God has blessed His people. What kind of people ought we to be? If everybody in this church was just like you, what kind of church would this be? Would it be a church full of pessimists? church full of cynics? church full of fatalists? I have decided that I'm not going to be any of those things. I've decided that I'm going to be an optimist. And that is why at the very beginning of this lesson, I invited you to join me in that effort. Number one, because it's the right thing to do. But number two, because I want you to help me in that effort. I want you to hold me accountable to that. I need people who are going to feed positive language into my life. Who are going to feed positive behavior into my life. Positive attitudes into my life. I need that desperately. And my pledge to you is that whenever you need that, I'm going to provide that for you. God has done too much for us. Romans 8 bears it out. God has done too much for us for us to have this kind of glass half empty mindset. Let's decide that we will be people who are characterized by optimism regardless of the difficulties and the pains that life may throw our way. Indeed, in all things... We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Now, if you're not a child of God this morning, I I don't want to come back to bad news, but I, I do need to deliver some bad news. If you're not a child of God, you're not living faithfully as one of God's children, then you're lost. You are outside of Jesus Christ. But the good news is, let me now get to the optimistic side of things. The good news is, You can change. And I realize the pessimistic side of us, the cynical side of us, the fatalist side of us says, I just can't do that. Not going to be able to do it. There's no way I can live the Christian life. Yes, you can. You can do all things through Jesus Christ who strengthens you. If you will put your faith and confidence and trust in Him. If you're not a Christian, if you will then submit yourself to the waters of baptism, to have all of your sins washed away, you can come up out of that watery grave, a new creation. You'll be a Christian. You can get your foot on that path that leads to heaven. We'll help you and you'll help us as we all try to go to heaven. That's just the most optimistic thing of all. If you are a Christian, brother or sister, if there are things in your life this morning that are unbecoming of a child of God, maybe you have allowed this stinking thinking to take hold of you the way that I think it's taken hold of me, if it's hindered your walk with the Lord in any kind of way, repent of that. 
Maybe you'll just do that right where you're sitting or right where you're standing this morning. Maybe you want to call upon your brothers and sisters, your family here, to help you in making that repentance stick. Let us pray with you and encourage you in every way. Whatever your need may be this morning, this invitation is for you. Take hold of it right now while we stand and while we sing.